Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And after a long time, I'm Tim Curtis. <laughs> You're Tim Curtis or like... <laughs> oh, yeah, but I just haven't said. <laughs> said I'm Tim Curtis in the podcast. We've had a little hiatus. We have. A little hiatus. <laughs> Um, but we're breaking that drought with a cracking chat. This week we've got Tom Moore um, as our guest. Now, Tom is the founder and CEO of With You, With Me, which is a fascinating enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but even more fascinating, arguably, is his backstory, the the reason he got to that position, um, having served in defence and being sort of spat out the other side and, and finding it difficult to translate those military skills into a civilian environment. And a civilian environment that's been incredibly successful, a multi-award winning business, um, part of the fast-moving um, group of companies, I think uh, Deloitte Fast 50. But Tom will tell you that he still wishes he was back in the green machine. Yeah, so a fascinating chat with Tom on um, you know, what sort of challenges veterans face, um, what may well be wrong in a global sense with uh, the the recruitment and uh, job placement industry, and then also some really personal and candid discussion on his own experiences with mental health. He talks about being a CEO and things like imposter syndrome and the challenges um, in a super, I think, refreshing and, and transparent, transparent manner. Yeah, he also talks about mindset and an oversupply of dopamine and too many generals. Can you have too many generals? How many generals does it take to change your life bulb? <laughs> Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Unforgiving 60. I am joined, as always, by Tim Curtis. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. And Tim and I are both joined by Tom Moore. Tom, how are you? Fantastic. Uh, it's nice to be here. Great to have you on. Um, Tom, as we normally do, it'd be great if we could start the episode by just getting you to provide a bit of background on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Ben. Um, so uh, the best way to describe myself is probably a bit of a monster. Um, I've started to describe myself as a bit of a goblin because uh, monsters are a little bit more Frankenstein. I'm not as smart and goblins are, comes from a, from a word that means rogue. So um, (laughs) a little bit about me is, um, is that the reason I joined the army was that um, I hated injustice and I think it's a bit of a natural thing. And as I've um, sort of developed over the time, I've probably become more of a rogue that hates injustice uh, so I, I like to break things that don't work. Um, and I guess my story starts in uh, Campbelltown, Southwest Sydney. Uh, I wasn't the average person that comes to Duntroon. I came from uh, Southwest Sydney, missing a fair bit of my front teeth. Um, uh, and I wasn't from the country or, or owned a yacht. So 
Hmm. Uh, I was also someone that was the first time in our family after 300 years that we'd uh, trial being an officer. So I was the first person in 300 years of military service of doing that. To turn to the dark side. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it definitely pissed my grandfather off for a long time. Um, and, I, and I left there. Um, uh, I went quite well at the School of Infantry uh, and because that I deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, as a platoon commander with 7RIR, uh, I led a 60-man combat team, doing a lot of cool stuff. Uh, and I f- sort of figured out that's the job that I always wanted to be. Um, unfortunately, uh, after about two years from returning, I got um, significantly injured um, and got told that uh, this, no matter what I do, uh, there's no way I could ever be the warrior that I wanted to be. So uh, I told him to fuck off, <laughs> pay for my own stem cell. I did 12 months of rehab, came back, uh, could definitely do our fitness assessment, but couldn't get through the PESA no matter how fit I got because my, my body just wouldn't do it anymore. Mm. Uh, so unfortunately, discharge, applied for hundreds of jobs, um, and then eventually started uh, with you with me because I was really annoyed at um, sort of two things. Uh, one was every time I've tried to help a veteran to get a job, the conversation initially starts with, um, we would like to hire a veteran because they're on time. It's like fucking hiring a doctor because they're clean. <laughs> it's sort of a really lazy way of taking a whole group of people mm. and yeah, the old disregarding oh, the asset have that they discipline are. or yeah. Yeah, well, like I'm terribly like this is probably been the first time I've been on time in maybe like a month. Um, <laughs> And, and I wasn't on time in the military. You'd only have to look at my record uh, to know how many times I was on a parade ground <laughs> or somewhere that was this would you know be disciplinary. Uh, and the second sort of thing that really bothered me is there was this real focus on uh, the resume. Uh, and people don't realize that the resume was created in 1492 by Leonardo da Vinci um, as a pitch deck. So he was using it to get rich guys, uh, dukes, to give him money to half finish artwork to fund his inventions, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't blame him for doing, but it's pretty much disappeared for a long time. And then with the invention of computers and, and came back and uh, I just found the whole conversation was about people being a commodity, not an asset, which is very different to the military. The military uh, looks at you based off your potential and, and trains you to do ordinary things in an extraordinary team. Um, but industry doesn't do that. And then there was this whole concept around um, you needed to be a resume. And like, you know, I think I wrote like 150 resumes, did 200 interviews and couldn't get a job as a security guard. So, um, you know, either I'm a fuckwit, which I probably am, or um, the whole system isn't working. Mm. Um, and we just looked at a few things and, and we realized that the underemployment rate was 39%. Um, there was a high veteran unemployment rate. There was also a real problem in um, that those that were 21 to 25 in Australia are now diagnosed with depression, one in four of them. And so this idea of people not entering the society and getting a job wasn't just affecting veterans. So I took all of my anger and started to take it out on that, which led to creating With You With Me. So I guess a little bit more about me um, is that I think everything in my life has been a catastrophic failure, but that's okay. Um, Two, I really hate injustice. So 
um, the idea of running a disruptive company um, that changes the status quo is uh, in my nature. It's not just something that's, that needs to happen. And last but not least, um, I've never been able to quieten the um, mission before uh, my men and before myself um, mantra that the military taught. Mm. So um, what with you and me's main objective is, is to uh, get the world to solve underemployment uh, and hire people based off potential. This is their experience. Um, and potential is aptitude and skills. Uh, it's not uh, who you know and where you're from, uh, which currently is how it's assessed. So, um, yeah, I would say it's it's definitely been traumatic. Uh, it's been enduring uh, and we have a lot more to go. Um, and there is nothing probably... There's nothing exciting about being a CEO, I would say. You know, we have 50, we had 50 staff 12 months ago. We now have 450 globally. Um, we hire about 40 people every two weeks. 75% uh, of our staff are combat veterans. Uh, one in four are neurodivergent. So uh, we've been able to like, solve this problem in a successful manner with the people that we care about. But uh, those three things that I mentioned at the start still pretty much make up who I am and um, they're not easy to deal with because you've got um, you've got you know someone that hates injustice that also likes to that's a fucking complicated idea then you've got you know a person that cares about the mission and the men more than themselves and in business it's very hard to um, you deal with people that are self-interested all, all day um so it's really hard to maintain your individual motivation. Uh, and, you know, last but not least, it's not the job I wanted to do. I wish I was still attempting to be a good warrior like everyone else in my family. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. It certainly sets it up and it actually prompts a, a couple more. You, you mentioned the, the CV or the resume is a, a bit of a, a stumbling point in terms of uh, it being a lazy way to, to recruit, probably across the board, but specifically yeah. to the veteran community, it not... Uh, adequately um, talking to that potential, talking to that sort of skills and aptitude. How have you mm. tackled that differently? How have you, um, within with you, uh, with you, with me, been able to, um, I guess, translate those military skills into something that's appealing to a civilian employer? Yeah, it's um, it. The answer is we didn't translate them. Um, we tried and it didn't work. It doesn't scale. So um, what we did was, you know, no one really wants to actually hire a veteran. There's a lot of veteran hiring campaigns, but you know, I think we're nearly the fastest growing veteran employer in Australia now. Um, and it, it became really simple. It's like, no one wants to hire a veteran, so why don't we just teach them all how to code? Hmm. Uh, and then if you, have a, um, if you have a security clearance and you know how to code, it's actually very easy to transition. Um, you become very valuable. Uh, to a marketplace that has a shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way our business started is we started translating resumes and skills. And then after about a year, we stopped um, because the, the fundamental issue was uh, the labor market is a commodities market. So mm -hmm. um, it means that we call it human resources and we call it human capital, um, both are commodities. Uh, and 
no matter how good you get at translating or writing a resume, it's very speculative. Um, and and people get lost in the speculation, right? So how they get over the speculation is by increasing word of mouth referral mm-hmm. or increasing um, education levels. Now, the problem is, is education levels definitely don't uh, lead to transferable skills. They might provide you a better way of uh, assessing a problem, uh, becoming good at a researcher, or fundamentally improve you universally, where the word universal comes from. So fundamentally make you more rounded. Mm -hmm. But that's not um, what companies need. Companies need people with skills. And it's always a lot easier to, when you build a job description, rather than map the skills, um, it's a lot easier to take the person who recently left the position or take the person that's Mm. good at the position and replicate it. So... um, we went completely on the contrary and said, there has been only one other place that we know of that we've ever worked with that doesn't really make you submit a resume, um, that assesses your potential and then gives you a crack. Um, and for me, that was the Australian Army. Yeah. Uh, so they tested your aptitude. Um, they you know, took away your privileges effectively, you earned them back. Uh, and then what they do is they don't treat you as an individual. They teach you a trade and how to employ it within a team, so a brick. Um, and if you look at tech teams, they're really similar, right? Like they they work as a team. No one truly owns the whole issue. They own the mission. Um, they now call it DevOps and, and CICD and Agile, but really it's just uh, a CMAP, uh, a constant process of a CMAP uh, with tools and platforms on a production line based off data. So the work is pretty much exactly the same as you would experience in, a, in an operational environment. Uh, so what we thought was rather than even argue the issue of resume uh, and transferable skills, why don't we um, sort of take in a different view? Veterans aren't the problem, society is the problem. What we thought about in society was people should not be valued based off speculating um, their experience and who they know. And that's how people are getting jobs. So mm-hmm. you could either help them build a resume and add to a resume or we took a different path of how about you test your aptitude with us um, we create then a new data lake and that data lake is uh, something that can't be seen so you know 67% of the privates that we test on our platform have the best uh, have the com- have a complete correlation of aptitude strengths to the best software engineers that we've that we've that we sampled against our aptitude strengths so all of a sudden it's like you know that 67% of people that are leaving at a private rank can actually be a really good software developer. Um, So people start focusing on that data. And then the second thing is, okay, now that we've got people to focus on what they can do, let's showcase that they can do it really Mm. quickly. Uh, So what we did was we started to build our own competency-based training um, where they would be trained as an individual and in a collective environment with practical outcomes. So, you know, not every software developer needs to understand computer science. They're laying code um, and code is getting easier and easier to lay. So um, the the time to train a software developer is really only 160 hours. And if they've got the right aptitude, they can actually go through it much quicker. Mm. So then all of a sudden, um, uh, what ended up happening is we didn't translate their skills again. We showcased their new skills within practical work that you couldn't ignore, whether it was a project, a lab, uh, or a portfolio. Uh, and then last but not least, they didn't believe us. Um, so what we did is we built our own skill testing system that took all of their current people 
that had you know five to ten years of experience and we skill tested them on the range um and then we took our groups of veterans that we were training and our veterans were beating them awesome. so you you can't ignore that data or that objective data and you definitely can't ignore someone's hard work from going from being a rifleman to learning to be a software developer mm. um, that shows their ambition it shows the maturity it shows uh, the the way that they solve problems like um if you come out of a combat support or combat core you actually have really high levels of um digital symbol coding and it comes from uh over time spending a lot of time uh with crypto and spending a lot of time um with uh, mapping and spending a lot of time with radios so in raytel so they actually, in digital symbol coding is your ability to learn something based off symbols, which is how we predict whether or not someone could be a good software developer. Yeah, so we right. took all of that mm. um, and and it still didn't fucking work. So um, <laughs> what, what we did was we started going after the work. Um, so, you know, we went into the market and said, all right, these, you have a, say, government customer A, you have a shortage of talent. Your suppliers aren't providing it to you we will give it to you at a lower cost. Just give us a chance. Um, and what ended up happening was uh, we started to win a lot of direct work, um, including you know, building a cybersecurity operations center uh, for Papua New Guinea, all the way through to building a cybersecurity operations center to the Washington Post, um, to getting our software bought by the US Air Force against 398 sort of companies. So uh, effectively, because no one wanted to buy us, we just went, well, we'll just take your fucking market share anyway um, and prove a point. And what what's that led to now is that, you know, it means that we're the first adopter of our own platform, uh, but it's, it's changed the market. So, um, you know, if you could take someone, prove their potential, train them and give them skills in 140 hours, uh, and do that at a thousand people a quarter. Um, people can't not ignore, like they can't ignore you. Mm. So I guess how we solved the resume problem was we went up 180 the other way. We invested about 25 million in it. We made sure that we never charged a veteran a cent because uh, we didn't want we didn't we didn't want to have any sort of physical barrier to learning a tech career. It's not just that we're a social impact company. It's it's really simple. Um, it's a really different job to being in the infantry. And I know I'm using that as an example, but yeah. that's the purest example of someone going from no skills to no applicable skills to a lot of applicable skills. Um, and uh, we proved that it worked at scale. Um, and we sort of had to fight everyone to do it. So it wasn't in no way has it been a positive experience, but the, the simple answer is now that we have this testing and it's been accredited, we're a technical college in the United States accredited. So we produce uh, pretty valuable training and we have 167 customers. Um, uh, we've, I would say we've beaten the early adopter market. Mm. So, you know, our focus now is to stuff transferable skills and stuff a resume and take on the early majority. Um, which is now a, a much bigger problem and also a different way of solving the problem. And you solve it not by being bold, but by testimony, uh, by reach um, and by good execution. So uh, what I would say is that specific problem is directly related to our business model. Um, and we did everything we said we shouldn't do boldly without charging a group of people a cent. So 
um, we could prove that it worked. Tom, before we leave life in camouflage and turn our attention to the success of your transition, what were the nature of your injuries that led to you leaving the military? Uh, yeah, so um, I got diagnosed with severe osteoarthritis in uh, both legs. Um, and it came about because I was on a basic recon course. Um, and I didn't really... I didn't really like the way it was running. Um, I didn't want to be a recon platoon commander, but apparently that doesn't matter. Um, and, um, you know, I was already carrying a lot of injuries and I went into that course with the wrong mindset. And after about four weeks, um, I quit. It's the only time I've ever quit. Um, and I'd had enough. I'd had enough of the bullshit that we had in Afghanistan from having too many generals over like six platoon commanders. It was just fucking insane. Um, I didn't understand why we were still doing dismounted reconnaissance without any technology. And, you know, I, I quit on myself and, and the team. And from there, my so it was really odd. Um, I went back to work after another six weeks. Every time I'd take a step, my legs would lock up and I'd just fall over. In some places, that made me look like Snoop Dogg doing a crip walk, but it was really... <laughs> really bad um and they they reviewed all my ankles and knees and and, it, and i just had nothing left um which was odd because i was like 26 so it had come from uh, i guess hereditary on my dad's side not my mom's side um and you know because i'd given up on myself all of those niggling injuries that i've ignored for seven years in the infantry started to come to fruition um and then when the army didn't want to help me pay for stem cell, uh, it became even worse. And I became my own worst enemy, um, I would say. Uh, and I would, I would probably suggest that I also sort of got a deep amount of depression. Um, and the only sort of thing that got me through was um, getting the surgery and doing four hours of rehab every day and then putting everything I had into it, but I, I still couldn't come back. So to answer your question simply, um, really fucked knees and ankles <laughs> that had no uh, way of rejuvenating um, and they were forcing me to fall over when I walk. Mm. So, And you've said a couple yeah. of times that you wanted to remain in the military, to remain a warrior, but I'm getting this overtone that you weren't really ever happy or content. So let me ask you the next logical question. Why would sure. you have wanted to stay in a job that you weren't getting great fulfillment from? That's a fantastic question. Um, well, I, there's sort of two problems here. Where, where, where does someone go, um, who likes to break rules, but also fight injustice? Um, you can't really join a business. Um, they're not looking for, I guess, white young men <laughs> to lead them, um, you can't really start one because we're from a place in um, the part of the world where a lot of capital doesn't exist and that's where I grew up. Um, I can't really be a police officer because 
you can't be disagreeable or a rogue and probably be a police officer, not anymore. Um, and I didn't really have any, I wasn't really that, I wasn't really that smart. So my ability to be an engineer, I wouldn't know what type of one I would be uh, in order to build a disruptive system. And, you know, I can't really draw, sing or write music. So, you know, I have really terrible fine motor skills. Um, uh, and so I can't really be a musician or an artist, which also allow for disagreeable people um, that hate injustice. So, um, you know, either I was going to continue to be a dickhead as a teenager or, and, you know, think I'm, I, I guess, better than I am, smarter than I am, more creative than I am, um, bigger than I am, or, you know, take my creativity, take my energy and put it into a structured box. Uh, and maybe that way I can do noble things, but also embrace the um, part of me that is, I guess, a bit darker or the shadow part. Um, and that's what I did. And it's very, if you have really high abstraction, so I, I guess fluid intelligence and you're very disagreeable and open to experience and you learn by talking about things that made fucking Kapuka an absolute nightmare. Um, I was definitely a heat seeker. Um, but I worked out that um, very quickly that I was very good at solving complex problems with little oversight and little resources. Uh, and fundamentally, I had a... I, at my my OSB or officer selection board, um, when I had a job offer to go to Google or um, become an army officer, um, the, the, the sergeant and the captain who had just come back from a, a tour to Afghanistan, I guess I didn't really change my way for the interview and probably came across like an arrogant dickhead. But the, the, the point was they said that they needed more people like me in the army. Um, you know, highly creative people, that'll work for a vision um, that can be disruptive uh, and go into the unknown. Um, whereas most people that were there on the day were highly agreeable school prefix. They were super conscientious and, you know, are not really going to push the orders process. Hmm. And um, after Duntroon, I actually, I had some very good uh, OCs that were very good at giving me those types of tasks. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I just from my experience uh, working in business now, there really wasn't any other option to uh, take my temperament, take my aptitude um, and take, I guess, the impact I wanted to have. And there really wasn't another viable option to do it anywhere else. So um, by that time in the army where I said I didn't want to leave, um, I didn't want to leave at all. I'd worked out how to fit with the army's culture as well as uh, stay who I was. Um, and the only thing that kept that in balance was by being super fit, right? Because you can't, you can't disagree with the commanding officer and not be able to beat everyone in a BFA. It's like, that's an infantry battalion. So as soon as I lost that um, ability, you know, a lot of, a lot of people started to like, just punch me in, in, in a lot of ways and that's okay. Um, that's the risk you take, I guess. Uh, in going that approach um, but 
I, I hope that answers your question. I would say that I would much rather be doing, knowing full well what I'm doing now and what I used to do. I would much rather still be a, uh, a commander of, or a, a commander of military troops than, than this. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Even, and, even despite the successes you realized in with you, with me. Yeah. Like this has been deeply traumatic. Um, you know, it, you, you're sort of someone with no skills, no experience, so no business skills, no tech skills, saying that the whole world market is wrong. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it, it means there's like six years of being a disruptor, which means that you've got a novel new product, you've got to take on about seven market assessments and say they're wrong. So there's people losing money, so they attack you too. And then the unfortunate thing is, you know, we have a very sort of visionary company in that um, we want to solve a bigger world of problem and we're helping veterans first. But you know, when someone buys a Tesla, they're pretty happy. When someone comes to us, um, they're generally lost. Hmm. They're underemployed or unemployed. Um, and, you know, our job is to help them uh, to, to find their path. So, you know, we don't even get to have that, I guess, positive feeling of hey you've got a novel product you're taking on the world um you know if you buy a tesla it's like hey, that's a pretty sexy fucking car but you know at least eight to 20 times a week i'm i'm on the phone to those that have transitioned and it it hasn't been positive um and you know we're very happy to to help them but you do that for you know six or seven years mate <laughs> it's uh it definitely takes its toll Look, and your experience is probably no different to Ben and mine. There were some fantastic things about our first career in camouflage uniform. There were some average things and there were some horrendous things. But in the aggregate, now that you can hold that a little bit at arm's length, what are the applicable skills, knowledge, attributes that have been transferable into with you, with me? What have you taken from life in the camouflage uniform into, into the organisation you're leading now? Yeah, like I, I think the only reason we've been slightly successful, we've definitely got a long way to go, um, is we the, the thing that I, I take the most is the will to win. Um, this idea that uh, you can be with a scarce amount of resources for a noble cause um, and with a small group of people, you can take on very big market players, um, drives our whole business. And we have two values that really underpin that. One's being fierce, which is a warrior value, and one's being transparent. So, you know, being a warrior but never get ahead of yourself because uh, you, you are the, the scrappy underdog. So the will to win is definitely something we, we've taken first and it sort of manifests as traits and skills. Um, you know, traits in a sense that work about 100 hours a week. Skills in a sense that... Um, we try to. We have to learn everything about business and technology as we're doing it. So uh, there's so much more I know about cloud architecture than I, that I now know. There's so much more I, I know about 
uh, how to build, um, you know, uh, the incremental, like the computational framework behind a, a database, uh, whether it's incremental or whether it's a global metric framework and all these things actually affect your business architecture. Mm. So there's so many skills that we've ascertained by not wanting to lose <laughs> so, um, is is really there. The second thing that I fundamentally think that we that I've taken is the ASDA cycle, mm. um, uh, the ability to act, you know, sense, decide, um, ad, yeah, decide, and, and you know, then adapt, and we just keep doing that. Um, you know, we didn't start off as a tech company, um, so you know, no one wanted. We started off as a recruitment company, and no one really wanted to hire. That, we didn't start off as a recruitment company to get people with MBAs a job. We started off as a recruitment company to get a private to corporal a job um, because they were the ones that, that were having the most issues. And, and why wouldn't they? They have the the highest amount of time outfield and the less least amount of transferable education in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, no one wanted to hire them. So it was like, all right, well, we better pivot. Well, everyone keeps telling us I want software developers and cyber people. So why don't we just do that? So... We started to do that, and then we we outsourced the training, and it was like, well, this training fucking sucks. <laughs> so we built our own training, uh, and the great thing about building training is the NCOs are really good at it. So you know, we hire more NCOs, we build our own training, and the first year it sucked, and then the second year it was okay, and then the third year GCHQ accredited it. Um, so I was like, well, okay, well, if we can do that, what else can we do? And you know, then we realized that um, in order to get people to pick the right training, so they didn't waste their time because I hated all the different programs that would waste veterans time coming out and tell them they can do everything. And the answer is you really can't do everything. You better work out what you're great at quickly uh, and you better double down on it um, in order to, to get the return for you, for you and your family that you can attain. Um, and so, you know, we, we built our own aptitude tests and we sucked at it. So, you know, we tested more people and we got better at it and we, we asked Stanford for help and they helped us. Um, and then, you know, no one wanted to, uh, hire it so we built our own skills test and then no one had to hire us so we went after the work so this idea of constantly acting uh, versus waiting to be told um, is one of the fundamental reasons we've been able to grow our business over you know 400 to 500 percent revenue year on year but but more importantly like last, last year we trained and helped 500 5263 people uh, get a job for free um, and this year we'll be training 44,000 people for free. Hmm. So the impact is uh, scaling, um, which is really exciting. So, you know, a will to win and the ASDA cycle are by far the standouts um, when it comes uh, to being very useful uh, when transitioning from the army and starting your own organization. Tom, you mentioned before your own um, experiences with mental health. Um, you've spoken about the trauma of starting this business. And I don't doubt that you must encounter a lot of people who are experiencing self-doubt, mental health issues as they get out of a career like the military and look at what's next. What have you learned or what do you personally use um, to, to, heap, uh, to keep you going through those sort of tough times? Have you developed any techniques and do you pass those on to the um, uh, your, your uh, veteran through um, with you with me? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's a tough question. Mm. Um, you know, I've, like I said, I've sort of been nothing but a bit of a catastrophic failure. So, um, you know, I quit on that course, which has led to, you know, my downfall. And, you know, I really couldn't get a job, which has led me to 
being in a, a point where I, we've been able to create with you with me, but I had to go through a lot of pain to do that. So, um, you know, and the other side of it is in order for us to do our job well, I've got to talk about how much of a shit human I was every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got to talk about, you know, like I am right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I wasn't perfect. I failed a lot. It weighs on me and I'm still not doing what I want. And you know, about eight to 10 times a day, I'm either telling that to a veteran that needs some help or a company on explaining why we're so passionate about the issue. Mm-hmm. So you really never mm-hmm. get to let go of it. No. Um, um, so, you know, unfortunately, I wish I liked money. Um, I don't because I grew up in a place without it. So I think that would help me. Uh, so the, the things that I do now uh, that I never used to do um, to help me with this challenge is um, I'm extremely transparent about my diagnosed depression. So um, as a CEO of a company, you know, not many people – uh, especially shareholders, they, they don't. You know, how do you deal with a CEO that's diagnosed with severe depression? Right, it's not a, it's not something that has been accepted in industry. But uh, so what I what I did, uh, rather than keeping it all in, um, I've started to talk very openly and freely about it. Uh, and there's two things I do. One is I have a, we call it a getting back to fierce plan. Like we have a lot of veterans in our company, so mm-hmm. uh, we're a lot more. We're a lot more, I guess, open-minded when it comes to people needing time to reset. Um, and also being a growth company, it's easy to hit burnout faster. So, uh, you know, every six weeks, we actually have a long weekend, almost like when you deployed field, you went out there for a certain period of time and you reset. Um, so it's in our battle rhythm. Um, so I tell everyone, I, everyone in our company can see my treatment plan for my depression. Um, and it might not seem as a way of dealing with it, but it's very, it's made my job much easier uh, in dealing with it. Uh, it means that I don't, the, the sort of imposter syndrome that sits around not talking about it, the perceived um, imperfection to shareholders and staff was all in my head and went away straight away, which was odd. Um, and fundamentally, um, people that were staff in our, in our company and not managers or executives have actually helped me the most, hmm. uh, frankly. Um, so that's the first thing I do. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing um, that I do um, is I spend a, a lot of time uh, designing new things. So um, my my aptitude strengths and my personality strengths uh, mean that I have to create new things. So if I, unfortunately, there's some really boring stuff about being a CEO. It's either organizing people, words, um, money, and you know, there's, there's nothing there's nothing really exciting about it. You can't smell it. You can't can't lick it. You can't touch it. Um, when you're a startup, you know, we're in my kitchen for three years, in the garage for two years. So it was very real. Uh, it smelled almost as bad as um, an infantry barracks so um it was very real but now it's very not so real so um my second sort of treatment that i would say i use um is uh fundamentally um i have to spend time each week creating new things uh so creating new features in the product uh new marketing campaigns 
uh, and working with um, the designers in our company to move the, the organization forward. And if I don't, I actually drastically increase the neuroticism. Uh, and as a CEO, you can't be neurotic. Uh, it has a, a constant downward effect uh, as well as an outward effect on your customers. Um, and the the last thing that um, that helps me is I, I have to take serotonin inhibitors, man. Like mm. there's, um, and I don't think people should be ashamed about that. I it took me a long while to um, be okay with that. My brain was producing. If you ever see my head, I've got an extraordinary fat head. Um, it's because my brain produces a lot of dopamine, which made me a pretty good soldier because I could stay awake. Um, and it does make you a pretty good founder because you can stay awake. But the downside of that is you don't produce as much serotonin. So um, you combine that with, you know, a lot of um, problems every day and, mm. uh, you know, constantly having to retell a shitty traumatic story. Um, eventually, my body didn't really want to produce serotonin. And those those tablets, uh, I guess, helped me gain some things back. So they're the, they're the three things that I would say have helped me um, come across and, um, I think they're all related to a simple sort of value that I learned in, in the army of being transparent. Mm. So, um, you know, rather than rather than uh, trying to go at yourself, it's it's okay even if you're the leader to tell people you're not having a good time. Um, and the military taught me that. Like it, it, it teaches you in a number of ways. It teaches you to move as fast as the slowest man. There's nothing actually wrong with the slowest man. Some days you will be the slowest man. Um, and it also sort of puts you in a sort of mindset that um, I have to be well in order to achieve our organization's mission. And if I'm not well, I'm not just letting myself down. I'm letting the team down. So um, the compounding effects of being the CEO or the leader um, and that mantra of my mission, my men and myself means that I can't ignore um, my mental health issues. Uh, you have to address them front on, no matter how uncomfortable and vulnerable it makes you. Um, and you can't. You have to address them holistically. Um, and I guess there's some things that I've learned to deal with. That no, answers your question. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And, and certainly a lot, uh, a lot of parallels with things we see in our leadership practice where, you know, that almost... Um, uh, I guess uh, hackneyed sort of idea that a leader will burn themselves out and they wear their overwork as a badge of honour um, because, you know, they're putting their job before themselves. But the paradox of it, of course, is that if you're not in a good place to make those right decisions, to act with empathy and to, to be a decent human, then you're going to be a worse leader as a result. And so it's interesting to hear you you sort of reflect on on very similar themes. The, the yeah, other... I would say that, like... Go ahead. No, you go. Uh, like... I, I think um, when it comes to tech companies and um, leading from the front, a lot of founders never really show how scary it is. Mm. So, um, you know, we went to the United States with like $1.8 million or $2 million worth of cash. Uh, and, you know, it was a catastrophic disaster. We were undercapitalized, um, didn't have the right scalable information systems. Um, and that led to you know the company sort of self-combusting um, a little bit. Uh, and the only way you get out of that is um, you know hitting the pavement, <laughs> yeah, uh, working your ass off and, and not giving up. So going all in. Um, and I guess you know I'm about to head to the UK tomorrow, 
and you know I'm fucking terrified. <laughs> yeah, like, and I, I think, um, you know, I, I think if you're not natural about the fear, you don't get analytical about how you need to solve the problem. Um, mm. And one of the things I found is that you know if you if you're not experiencing fear, that you're not being bold enough. So. Like I, I don't like this attitude of um, this person's an extraordinary person. You know, they're highly visionary. They're you know taking on the world. The answer really is is hey, it's fucking terrifying to after failing the first time, mm. going back and conquering new markets. And and you it, you should embrace it because if you do embrace it, you ask why you're scared, and then you actually start to solve the problem objectively um, versus listening to your own shit and thinking that. Uh, you know, I can take this on. I can do anything. And the answer is, man, it's a, the UK market's a brutal market. Yeah. And you've got to be smart. You've got to be fast. You, you've got to be okay uh, with telling people that you're a little bit worried about it because I think you'd be surprised when your staff turn around and say, oh, that's all good, man. We'll help you out. Hmm. And yeah. that theme of transparency that you've spoken about, um, and particularly in regards to mental health, it, it does seem societally we're getting a bit better with that and, and with ideas like neurodiversity and, and these sort of concepts where we're losing a bit of the stigma. Um, you, you've spoken a bit about people not wanting to hire veterans and there being a stigma about ex-military folk. Are, are you seeing a shift in that perception, in that sort of stigma um, with uh, an increase in transparency? Uh I think I, I think we're definitely seeing a shift in um, our customers um, because we've had so many brilliant people come through our program and mm. do great work. So you can't ignore the you can't ignore the, the empirical stats. business yeah. data. Yeah. Um, uh, is the market shifting to be more? Um, I guess uh, open to taking a risk on veteran. I would say in Australia, definitely. Um, I don't know if we've had a hand in that, but here it's a lot more positive than it still is in North America and the UK. Um, uh, extremely more positive. So uh, I can't tell whether it's the um, the country's small and we're dealing with problems as a country for the first time. Uh, you know, we have we had a lot of bushfires and we had COVID. And we've got you know pressure from East Asia in a big way um, that's making the country work a bit more closely together than it probably ever has. Uh, I think that's an effect. I also think that um, a younger generation of veterans that served in Central Asia and the Middle East are now starting their own businesses um, and are being successful employing others that they've worked with uh, and are doing new things in society. So I think that's happening a lot more here than it is in the US and, and, and the UK. Um, and I think this idea that um, uh, this general idea that uh, people don't want to work <laughs> um, for companies where they're treated as a commodity is also laying into the issue. So um, in a lot of places, a lot of firms buy our software um, to hire veterans, but they quickly realize that uh, we could actually make everyone in their business an asset and all of a sudden they buy our software for everyone that works there, um, which is really interesting because it means that um, society has had a shift to uh, we care about people. If we don't, they're going to leave. Um, and we would like to not have them leave because there is a consequence. 
Uh, and that consequence is not just an emotional consequence, a sociological consequence, and it's also an economic consequence. So um, to answer your question, I think Australia is doing it better. I think a, a younger generation of veterans being business owners is driving change much faster. Uh, and I, I just think in particular that this idea of sustainable business um, is forcing companies to look at people as an asset instead of a commodity. Uh, and um, in smaller Western countries, where it's just a little bit closer together like Australia, there's a bit more success. leadership and my final question Tom you said when you're in uniform one of your great frustrations was that there were too many generals now you're in your organization with all of the explosive growth and the geographic diversity how do you make sure that there's not too many generals uh, that's a great question um, uh, there's three ways that we do it um, the first way is uh, uh, you can earn ordinary shares at our company by earning revenue, making us more profitable, solving a problem, building a feature, and helping another staff member become a shareholder. Um, and not in that order, by the way, do we allocate the share percentage. So that means that in our business, um, in six months, 100% of our staff will be shareholders with you. What does that mean? Uh, it fundamentally changes the dynamics of how the company needs to make decisions. Um, it moves to a model where as a CEO and founder, you've got positive shareholder tension. So you've got external shareholders, you've got founder shareholders, and you've got employees. And the employees are the ones that are putting all their work on the line. So um, what ends up happening is you end up having a, an ownership mindset in your uh, business um, and when there's an ownership mindset um, there's less politicking um, because people just want to get stuff done um, they're valued for their ideas uh, and not just the hours that they work or they're valued for how they're helping each other build so um, that's the first thing we do we operate a model where staff can earn ordinary shares for doing actions that lead to a positive organizational organism um, and that separates so much politics like it it stops the idea of i need to be a team leader in order to to grow my value it stops the idea of um well allows, it allows the best ideas to win because more of them are brought up and more of them are voted on um so that's the the first thing um and it leads into the second thing um 
we are absolutely ruthless on um, one category when hiring and onboarding. So with hiring, uh, just because we believe in potential over experience, it doesn't mean that everyone can potentially work here. And when we interview you, um, we have one of the youngest people in the company, so someone that's new, and one of the older people in the company. We do something called a culture fit interview. And that interview, um, we ask one, like it's really just one question. It's how you, how you would add to the culture. So um, it means that our culture has to grow as, the fast as, as fast as our systems. We're not looking for people to become us. That's, that won't truly solve the problem. Um, we need people to add um, and not detract from what we've built, uh, but it doesn't mean you have to fit it perfectly. So this idea of um, fitting the culture and adding to the culture uh, is, you know, they're, they're two different things, but what it allows us to do is keep hiring people that can add to the sociology of the business um, and the right people adding to your culture will actually remove a lot of leadership challenges that you have um, because they're coming in Staying, say, seeing that they can add, they don't have to play games and they can get there. The second part of that process is how we do onboarding. So um, as a part of the onboarding process, it goes for about two weeks. Um, the second session they meet me, and the first thing I tell them is, there's our shareholder reports. Uh, this is the vision of the company. This is the strategy. I only got two more years left as a CEO. Um, and here are all my fucking flaws. Uh, and upfront, I can't change them because they lead to these strengths. Um, but here's what you can expect from me. And here's what I expect from you. So straight away, you know, we're telling you exactly what we're like. We're telling you that we're not perfect and it's okay. Uh, and we want to, we want, we want you to, to take the time to get to know the business. Don't blow yourself up. And as a part of that uh, onboarding, you, um, you get a problem and the business is, it's not, a, it's not one of those, like, uh, you know, you're on an Island with six people problems. It's a, we have a gap in our product flow. We, we, we're looking to increase this percentage of adoption or if we give them a legitimate business problem and they get a week to solve it. Uh, and what ends up happening is out of the 18 onboarding sessions that we've done, we've funded 16 of them. Um, so as someone that's new to the business, you come in and you own a problem as a team and your ideas are embraced and adopted very quickly. So all of like this idea that we're not real um, and it's just all a bunch of corporate cult bullshit uh, goes out the window because they see very quickly um, their features, their programs, their investment getting spent on. Um, you know, we have an esports team. We built an esports team of pro gamers because it's the best way of having people that are neurodivergent and autistic apply for our company jobs. Um, and we see a lot of growth in that market. We, we, we think that a lot of people that are neurodivergent are told to change and they don't. They just... They just need the access uh, and the skills. So, you know, we, they ask us to fund a seven hundred thousand dollar a year esports team, and we have um, because that's where all the, the leads were coming from for those that identified as neurodivergent. They came from our our gaming community that we set up. So, uh, and then the last thing that we do um, is we have a very flat structure. So, uh, the way our business works, um, and it's not because we came up with this. Apple came up with this is. You have a um, executive team. It works like a Knights of the Round Table uh, versus a dictatorship. They have um, what we call a system or a business unit. Uh, so within that business unit, we then just have production lines uh, and that's it. And then every six, 
every time we hit six people, we create a new production line. So we literally have a structure that's um, one layer executive, one layer of business unit, and then teams. Uh, so very, very, very flat. Um, and then every time we need to grow it, uh, we replicate uh, the structure versus adding layers. So if we deployed overseas in the geography, um, you know, we stay a small, tight-knit team. Um, a team leader gets promoted. Every time we hire six people to that production line, we just uh, promote a team leader and then we keep going and they're all at the same level. So sort of three things, uh, owner mindset. Um, two, um, you come straight in and you solve problems and then we invest in those solutions. So, you know, we practice what we preach uh, and you're adding to the culture as well as the business straight away. Uh, and then three, um, a very, very simple production line model uh, that stays flat, which I think Apple pioneered and Intel pioneered about 20 years ago. Tom, sounds like an awesome way to avoid overgeneralship. I'm, I'm applying. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. I'm going to work, work with Tom. Mate, if you want a uh, reference, probably best not to come to me for, for Tim. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wouldn't survive the culture, <laughs> culture interview. Hey, listen, Tom, that's been awesome. Thank you so much for, for your really candid and, and frank sort of shares um, with us this afternoon. Really impressive what you've uh, done to date. And I can only imagine what we're going to see next. So best of luck with it um, as you progress forward. And good luck with your trip to the UK tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk and meet with you both. See um, you soon. Cheers, Tom. I know you're waiting for me I know I'm being a coward Why don't you follow your dreams? Why do you follow your father? Why won't you break free? 
Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less traveled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60. That's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving 60.